All right, once again, I do want to welcome everybody here tonight and everybody listening on our podcast channel. Now, a quick recap from what we learned last week is that we are called to do what is right as Christ followers, no matter what other people in this world are doing. And that is we're to love our neighbor through our actions and being just and everything towards everyone. And finally, that God gives us wise direction on how we should live in peace and harmony with all people. Now, tonight, we're going to continue with the study. We're in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles with you, go to Exodus. That's the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus 24 in particular, right? So Exodus 24, we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. Let's just jump right in and let's see what it has to say. And this is what it tells us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Now, so in these verses, we're going to see God calling Moses, his brother Aaron, Aaron, his first two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and God calls them to the mountain along with 70 of the elders, right? And as they approach, this is what's interesting, as they approach, God says basically, okay, that's far enough. That's far enough. Only Moses can come, fur can come further. So while God is allowing a small number of the men to come a little closer, the general population, as you may have noticed, has to stay way back. They're not allowed to come at all. Only Moses, God's chosen servant, and we're going to see, comes even, even closer than that. And we have to remember that later on, once the Israelites, this is what's interesting, later on as the Israelites, as they build the, uh, the holy temple, even the temple itself is broken up into all kinds of sections where different people can go and can't go. There's a section for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. There's a section for the men. There's a section for the priestly class. Then there's a whole other area called the Holy of Holies where only the high priest is allowed to go once a year for a very short period of time, right? So there's all these rules about what they can do and where they can go and what they can't do. And that's a very, very different system from what we have today, right? And I've said this before. We've talked about this, the Holy Temple. You know that every one of you, if you wanted, could walk up here and there's no big rule about that. Right? I mean, don't do it right now. I'm talking. It'd be a little weird. But you know it's safe, right? Nothing's going to happen to you. Back then, that was different. There was an area, like I said, called the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year for a very short time. And if anybody, including the high priest, went in there when they weren't supposed to ha go, you know what happened to them? They died. That was their system. This was serious, right? And so what we're seeing is the beginning of this, right? And I want you to pay attention to this as we go further because we can see who goes where, what God allows people to do. And we're going to see in a little bit that God allows Moses to come the closest. I mean, really, really close. But it's not right away. Even there, there's some rules. Even Moses doesn't have, like we like to, I joke, like to say, the backstage pass. He can't just go anywhere. It's very specific even then. So let's go to uh, verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. So Moses is telling the people all the laws, all the teachings that God has given so far. Now this, let's be honest, this would have been a very exciting time for the Israelites. They still had no homeland. They had a very limited identity as a people. Remember, it wasn't long ago they were slaves for a very long time. Now they're free, and their own God, their own God is giving them and them alone these commands, these laws for them. 
And so God is, this is further evidence that God is claiming them for his own, right? Their identity as God's chosen people is really starting to come together bit by bit, piece by piece. So while the laws were serious and the people are starting to realize how sinful they are next to a holy God, they were still his people. This is very cool for them. This is very neat. They, he was making them into a special nation. And that's why Jews, even today, hold the law so special, why they hold it up so high in their heart, because they see themselves as God's people. Remember, this wasn't just a generic set of rules that God gave. He was refining them. He was trying to make them more holy like them. So again, this is very special. And this is the reason why in verse 3 it tells us that all the people, after they heard, heard the laws, they responded together. Everything the Lord has said we will do. They all did it together. Like everybody here, you're like, yes, we will do this together. Right? They seem very glad. They're very honest. These are God's laws. We want to do this. We're going to do this. And that's good. But there's also the argument that they may not yet have realized how serious, how all-encompassing these laws are going to be. Like maybe they didn't realize how big a deal what they were actually agreeing to was. They may have been a little overconfident in their ability to keep those laws. And if you remember anything from the Old Testament, there's a lot of times they broke those laws. Remember, there were 613 laws that they eventually had. They came down from God. They, they governed everything they did, from what they ate, who they married, when they worked, when they didn't, how they celebrated, how they raised their kids, how they worshipped, how they punished each other. It's all-encompassing. covered everything. And these laws were difficult to keep. And it stayed that way. right? In fact, 1,400 years later, 1,400 years later, in the New Testament book of Acts... We get this little taste of how difficult all those laws actually were over time. And the verse I'm talking about comes from Acts chapter 15. And in that verse, we read a little bit from Peter, where Peter, is, he's describing how hard it is to keep those laws. Let's look at that now. Acts 15, 10. Now then, this is Peter talking. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor ancestors have been able to bear? Now look at his words. The law went, went from being a gift, something, oh, this is awesome, this is special, it defines us as a people. These are our laws, we will never break them, we're going to keep them together. Till now, over a thousand years later, how is, Peter, how is he describing them? A, a yoke, a heavy yoke that we are unable to bear. And you guys know what a yoke is? If you have your phone, you can Google it real quick. But it's basically one of those large wooden things they put on a cow or a bull to pull. So it's something a beast of burden uses that we humans put on there. So it was a heavy load. And he said, this is something that we were not even able to bear. So the law, when they really get down to it and understand the law, it's something that they couldn't handle. It was too big of a burden. Now next, let's go back to book of Exodus, verses four and five. It says, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got early, up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Now you may have noticed that in verse three, we read how Moses verbally told everybody about the laws. He's, he was reciting them to the people. Now Moses is making it more official. He's putting everything in writing. I mean, let's be honest. When people put something, no, I want that in writing, you mean what? That means business. 
It's not, we're not changing it. It's official. And that's what he's doing. God's laws are going to be permanent. These laws were meant to be passed down from generation to generation, to be studied and looked at, right? And you can also make the argument that God was being quite practical. He wasn't going to rely on human memory to remember all those laws. Let's be honest, my memory's not that good. I live out by the tractor supply, and sometimes my wife sends me to Publix, which is what, not even a mile away? And I'll forget half the stuff she sent me. It happens. So how are you going to remember 613 laws perfectly? God wants them written down. This was God's covenant. It was for all people. Nothing was to be hidden. It was to be blasted out there. And the idea was when you read the law, he wants it to be easy to understand, for us to comprehend The next part of the verse tells us that Moses, he built an altar and he set up 12 pillars that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they sacrificed animals on that altar. Now this is particularly significant because the need for sacrifice shows that people are sinful, right? God just gave them the law. But by the way, when you break that law, this is how you get back. I'm giving you the law, I'm giving you, like for instance, I'm going to give you the speed limit, and I know you're going to break it. So this is the fine you have to pay. So they're doing both, one right there, right? Their sins will still need to be atoned for. God is still holy and distant, and they are sinful and cannot approach him. The law shows how sinful they are, how much they fall short. And these sacrifices are man's temporary attempt to remove some of that sin, right? And that's the point. And since Moses set up 12 pillars, one for each of the tribes of Israel, he's saying very publicly, very visibly, each of the tribes are involved in this. Each tribe has accepted. You are responsible. You are being held to these laws. There's no part of Israel that can say, well, I wasn't there. I don't know anything about it. He's saying, no, this is everybody. This is all of you. Now, the next few verses, they begin to describe for us exactly what happens when they sacrificed those animals. Many times through the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, you're going to hear about animal sacrifice. And you go, okay. This is going to get very specific on what that entails. Let's look at verse 6. Moses took half the blood and put it in the bowls, and put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So what happens when they sacrifice the animal? They would bring it up near the altar and someone would hold the horns, hold the animal, while someone else slit its throat. And they had a big bowl that would catch the blood that would pour out, which would probably be quite a bit. Those are large animals they frequently did. Moses took half of that blood. Imagine this, was the, imagine this speaker... This little beauty was the altar. He took half of that blood and he poured it on there. So he had literally blood dripping down the sides. Now this obviously would have been very dramatic, very shocking, very visible. And that's exactly how it was supposed to be. That's how it was supposed to look. The blood represented life. Since they committed sin, that blood that someone's blood needed to be shed. Someone needed to atone for that, a life for a life. Next, the verse tells us that Moses read. He read from the book of the covenant. So the people have now heard the words of the law several times. And this is, again, when, the, when they get done reading it, he, the people say, we will do everything you have just said. We will do this. They heard it before the sacrifice. Now they're hearing it again during the sacrifice. 
its heaviness, its all-encompassing effects, along with the blood on the altar, cannot be overstated. This was not a covenant to be ignored, to be taken lightly. And so they responded, yes, we will do this. Now, here's what's interesting. So far, the people have not been directly, physically affected by any of this, by the shedding of the blood. But that's about to change. Let's look at verse 8. Moses then took took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. On the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now I want to pause here for a moment. I want you to really focus on what's happening here. Because again, this is quite dramatic, but that's how it was meant to be. When the animals were sacrificed, they gave their lives to pay for this sin, right? The animal's blood was collected in the bowl. Half of it was splashed on the altar. The other half would have been splashed on you guys. You would have left this service with animal blood on you. Now think about that. This act bound them to the Lord, to the law. The blood was evidence that they had blood on them. They were sinful. This was real. Think about how dramatic that would be. I mean, don't let that fly away quickly. I mean, you you imagine what that would be like? That's huge. And that's how it was supposed to be. That's how it was meant. The agreement was, was between God and them. God was holy. They were not. The law showed them their sin. Now they had physical evidence of this on them. And the sacrifice was this bridge, a temporary bridge of God and them coming together. They were still very much separate, but in a way, their sins were starting to be atoned for. It involved every part of their life. It bound them to the law, God's plan for their future. Now here's what's interesting. This law, this agreement, had no expiration date. Look closely at all the stuff we just read. It wasn't like, hey, in 10 years, we're going to do it all over again. Something new. Don't get used to it. No, this was like, this is it. This, This is the agreement. The people and their children, their children's children, generation and generation, this is what they were bound to by this blood. There's even, this is what's interesting, there's even a passage in the book of Zechariah 9, verse 11. This, this occurs almost a thousand years later than what we just described. A thousand years later, this is what it says, Zechariah 9, 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So a thousand years later, God is still speaking of this covenant and the blood that was shed. Because it still bound them. The people, because they accepted this covenant, they were still benefiting from it. So just as the people were bound to it, so was God. And as we know, God keeps his promises, doesn't he? Way better than humans, all right? He is trustworthy. He does not forget. But thankfully, God is patient, he is kind, and he is forgiving. But now here's things where really start to get cool, especially for us Christians, right? And to further show that this is all connected, which it is, we're going to read something about Jesus, something he said in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 27 to 27, 27 to 28, excuse me. It's going to sound very familiar. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood, what? Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This was connected. 
to what God was doing with the law 1,400 years earlier. The Last Supper, right before Jesus died on the cross, before he came, became the sacrificial lamb for all of us, where he shed his blood on the cross. In that moment, he was doing, what, he was doing a reminder of what God the Father did 1,400 years earlier. But now he's the one shedding that blood. He's the one becoming that sacrifice for us. And the act of communion is a way for us to participate, to remember this, to never forget. That's why we're to, he says to take communion often. Do it regularly. Do it together. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So what's so interesting is that the Old Testament and the New Testament, they build on each other. They're all connected. And Jesus frequently said, all the scriptures point to me. There's actually, there's a verse in the book of John where Jesus, he's having a debate with these religious leaders and he reminds them that they had lost sight of this fact. It's in John 5, 46. He's actually talking to the religious leaders. He says, if you believed in Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. What's happening here is the religious leaders, they were actually upset with Jesus because he had cured somebody on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says right back to them, the reason you don't believe me, the reason you don't understand this is because you don't even know Moses. You don't understand the scriptures. If you believed in Moses, you would see that what I'm doing builds on the law. But since they didn't understand Moses, the teachings, the purpose of the law, they would never understand Jesus' purpose. They would never get it. So let's get back to Exodus 24 because what's about to happen is pretty spectacular. In verses 9 to 11, Moses, Aaron, and his sons and the 70 elders see something that extremely, extreme, extremely few people have ever seen. Let's read that together. Uh, Exodus 24, 9 to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of, elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Now we have to pause here and examine this, because this, again, like I said, this event is extremely rare. And when you read it, it sounds like they saw God, right? or at least part of him. They saw something, a glimpse of heaven to a degree, Right? And this is what they saw. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. For star so for starters, they did not see God's face. It does not say that. But they possibly saw part of him, the lower half, but they at least saw where he was standing. Because let's be honest, if they got a good look at his face, if they saw him, you would get a description of that. There would be something. If they were able to describe the floor, they would have been able to describe God, but we'd never get that. And the Bible actually tells us in Exodus 33 that no one can see his face and live. So they did not see his face. Because here's what's interesting. If they saw him, got a good enough description, they, we would have something. Well, what was he wearing? What color was his skin? Were his toes well done? Was he muscular? Have a big beard? What? Nothing, right? We never, we never get anything like that because they did not see him in that way. But they did get some information. They did see something. And what they saw resembled something called lapis lazuli. And this is actually a picture of it. Let's go to our next slide. So at least what they saw, the floor of heaven, or at least part of it, what they saw looked like that. 
but it was far more blue, far more beautiful, but along those lines. Now, here's what's interesting. Much later on in time, uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a vision of heaven. And let's look at what he described, Ezekiel 1.26. Above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli. And on this throne, high above, was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. So in this vision, Ezekiel, he sees the throne as well, and he describes this exact same picture. He even sees something, someone kind of resembling a man, but it's not clear. Could it have been God the Father or Jesus? We don't know. It doesn't say. But what Ezekiel did see with clarity was the throne. And he, again, he saw this deep, blue, beautiful material. So after this incredible vision, God actually tells Moses to come up further on the mountain. And this is where he's going to give him the, the tablets of stone with the law written on them. But just before Moses leaves, he returns to the elders. And verse 14 says, He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in the dispute can go to them. So here's that limit God placed on the elders, the others getting close to him. The general population was still way, way farther down the mountain. The elders were allowed to come to a certain point, but they had to stop. They couldn't go no further. God is holy, and they are not. And remember, the separation from the, they feel from their God is very, very real. Have you ever, honestly, in your Christian life, have you ever felt like God told you, I can't walk past this point? Like physically, don't go past this point. It doesn't happen. We don't feel that way. We don't have that relationship because of what Jesus Christ did. They did, and it was very dramatic. Also notice that Moses leaves Aaron and her behind, and he reminds the elders that they can solve any problems, any disputes that come up. You know, and that means the people still need leadership. While Moses is away, things are going to happen. People are going to argue. There are going to be quarrels. And Aaron and her do seem like a good choice to a degree, but we also know what happens with Aaron in a little bit. They're going to fail miserably. You remember the story of the golden calf? We're going to get to that later on in another teaching, but that's coming. So now Moses goes up further on the mountain in verses 15 and 16. This is what it tells us. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled, now pay attention to that word, settled on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So Moses reaches a spot high up on the mountain, and then a cloud descends on the mountain. So no one can see God's presence. Now look closely at the number of days the cloud was there before God allowed Moses in. Did you notice that? Six days. Six days. And on the seventh day, what happened? God said, now you can come closer. Just like with the Sabbath, we're to work for six days on the seventh day to set that side, day aside for rest to spend that day with God. Remember, God's not up there just picking random numbers of days. Like, hey, let's go with five-ish. Let's be five is good. How about four? There's a reason for everything. Each piece has a specific purpose, and it continues through everything he does. Now, the reason I highlighted the word settled in verse 16 is because that term also comes up much later in John chapter 1, and it's, it's used to describe Jesus. I'm going to read that to you. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've only seen his glory, the glory of the one 
and the only Son, who came from, from the Father, full of grace and truth. The words settled in Hebrew and dwelling in ancient Greek mean the same thing. So the point of the verse in John tells us that Jesus, as the word of God, came and settled among us. He's the physical expression of God among us. His love, his forgiveness, he's his Messiah. He settled among us the same way God, his spirit, settled on that mountain at that time when he gave the Ten Commandments. Now, here's where there's a further connection. As, begun, as, as God is now uh, beginning to meet with Moses, he's going to give him very specific commands. Commands on how to build the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle that they're going to build, which is eventually going to become the temple. And all those things, especially the tabernacle that they're going to build, and a tabernacle is a meeting place. They're examples of God providing a place where he can meet his people, where they can begin to come closer to fix this relationship, where unholy people, through the law, can begin to approach their God. I want to zip through the entire Bible in like 20 seconds. You guys ready? Okay. Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of this. This is where all it's leading. Like, this is like behind the curtain. Like, right? Jesus, eventually, because he dies on the cross, he replaces the need for even a tabernacle. He replaces the need for an altar. All of that stuff. He kept all the laws. He died on the cross for us. He paid our penalty. And he's the focal point of all of that. And biggest and best of all, he removes that separation between God and us completely. Remember, remember when Jesus died on the cross, when he, right when he died, what happened to the temple curtain? Torn in two. The temple curtain was the last physical barrier between the people and God. And when that tore in two from top to bottom, it meant there was no more physical separation between God and us. None of that was needed anymore because of Jesus Christ. That's really, really good stuff. Now here's the last two verses from, from chapter 24. Let's read them together and let's see what happens next. Uh, verses 17 and 18. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord, it looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So now Moses, it tells us, he ascends to the highest part of the mountain. And remember, the Israelites, they're still far, far below down on the mountainside, way down on the bottom. There's likely no way they probably could have seen Moses, like, you know, like he looked like an ant going up there, see him in the distance. But the glory of the Lord, as it descended, it looked like a consuming fire. Now think about those words. When we, get, when we think of God, we think of heaven, we get this beautiful picture in our mind, right? It's just phenomenal. Imagine what that would be like. Beautiful place, and that's true. But what the Israelites are describing is a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. A consuming fire, which means a fire that devours what's in its path. That's what consume means. It devours, it destroys. They're looking up and they see this on top of the mountain and that would have been a very scary, very dramatic thing. And they know what? Moses is up there. He's up there. And they have no idea for how long. How long is he going to be? We can't see him. How long is it going to take? Right? So God calls to Moses, and Moses enters, and he goes alone. He goes that last little bit. I want to picture that event in your mind, because I don't think we give this event due respect that it deserves, because none of us were standing there. But you got to remember, there was no precedent for this in history. 
Nothing like this had happened before. There was no manual where Moses could have read that said, okay, it's going to look like a consuming fire, but I'm going to be able to walk in and I'm going to come out and I'll be just fine. Be gone about two hours. It didn't say any of that. There was nothing. God simply did what? Called him in. And he went. And how long was he there? 40 days, almost a month and a half straight. What would that have been like for Moses? What, what would that have felt like 40 days and 40 nights? Would it have felt like this? And it doesn't tell us, but think about this. Would it have felt like 10 minutes? Would it have smelt like things were burning? Or being that close to God would have smelled like something beautiful. It doesn't tell us. Did he eat? Did he get hungry? Was he scared? Did he get to sit down? 40 days and 40 nights. Come on, nobody thought of that but me. Now think about this. This is how my mind, my mind works when I read this. Because it leads me to another question. What do you think heaven will smell like? Now imagine your first big step in there. And you take that big breath. Yeah, I know. I don't know, but it's going to be awesome, right? It's going to be amazing. But there's all those, see, and this is, what, this, was, this is what's so amazing about a place like heaven when we get there. There's going to be so, there's going to be millions and millions of tiny little things that we never thought of that are just, to be in God's presence are just going to be mind-blowing. Absolutely in every way. And Moses was in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's up there, he also told Aaron and the others to stay behind. Only Moses could go up there. He went alone. He had to go without any support. What do I do? Am I okay, guys? Can I go walk past? Or do I need to go slow? What do I do? And that's important for us to note because one day, each one of us are going to stand before God alone on the judgment day. We will. No one else is going to be there. It's just you. And depending on what you believe, depending on who you follow, that can be either a wonderful experience or it could be very scary, right? That's the nature. For people who turn their back on God, who people who want nothing to do with Jesus, it will be a judgment. But for those who've accepted Jesus Christ into their heart, those who believe, for those who love their neighbor as themselves, the one who show love and forgiveness the way Jesus do, it will be a wonderful day. Those people will hear these words. And who wouldn't want to hear this walking in? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So today, the point of this story, for everything in here, is if anyone has not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if anyone has doubts about where they will be on that judgment day, then please accept Jesus Christ. We are here. We are here to help. We are here to help you in your faith. If there's anything we can do, please remain behind after the service, and we would love to pray with you to help you on that journey. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, Tonight we learned how the law, the temple, the animal sacrifice all point forward to the great work of Jesus Christ. Let us never forget his sacrifice on the cross. Father, we thank you for washing away our sins.
from making us new and sending your Son to be the way of life and salvation. May his name be great the world over. And may this church be an example of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And may many, many more people come to know and love your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.